0: Hello, I'm Andrew. I'm Nathan. And welcome welcome to to this this week's edition edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 11th of October, 2023.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking news as a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD. Simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 880 111. We hope you
0: enjoy this week's edition. Recording for you this week, we have myself, Andrew, Angela, Christine, Ian, Helen, Mina, Simon and of course not forgetting Flashback Roger in this week's edition. We have an update from Beacon, the quiz with Mina. We have local news for the black country. A. Did you know section from Flashback Roger? We have a football news selection from West Brom and Wolves. We also have the weather for the week ahead. Local news to start though with Ian, Christine but first Angela.
2: The City Charity and Food Bank has started an innovative scheme to help people struggling with getting food. Secret Angels Food Bank has started a new voucher scheme which will allow service users who are eligible to receive up to six food parcels per year and aims to strike a balance between providing ongoing support to those in need and making room for new referrals. The Food Bank, which is based at the Park Village Education Centre in the Park Village area of Wolverhampton, said it had started the scheme after a surge in demand and shortage of donations following the COVID-19 pandemic and the ensuing cost of living crisis. The scheme works by having eligible individuals undergo an assessment to determine their need for food assistance which helps secret angels to work out who requires the most support and ensure they receive it, with those eligible being placed on a voucher database for food parcels which are valid for up to two months. The six food parcels provided per year will help ensure that service users receive essential supplies throughout the year and will work to include a variety of nutritious items in the parcels to promote well-rounded diets. A spokeswoman for Secret Angels said, Food banks have long been seen as a short-term solution to address immediate hunger and food insecurity. However, recent developments and evolving perspectives suggest that food banks are playing an increasingly vital role in addressing the persistent issue of food poverty and have become a long-term solution. Secret Angels Food Bank's new voucher scheme represents a crucial step in adapting to the changing landscape of food insecurity. By addressing soaring demand while ensuring sustainability, this innovative approach promises to make a lasting impact on the lives of those it serves. It not only provides immediate relief, but also encourages community involvement, making it a beacon of hope for our community during challenging times. Keith Berridge, Food Bank Coordinator, said, As the coordinator of this vital program, my passion lies in bridging the gap between need and nourishment. We're here to provide more than just food. We're offering dignity, care and a helping hand to those facing difficult times. Alvina Ali, founder and volunteer, said, In times of adversity, Secret Angels remains committed to our mission of feeding hope. This change helps us accommodate more people in need while providing ongoing support to our service users. Their well-being is our priority. We're introducing this food voucher scheme to ensure that no one in our community goes to bed hungry. Together, we'll continue to make a difference one meal at a time. To find out more about Secret Angels voucher scheme, email info at secretangels.org.uk.
1: three community hubs supporting homeless and lonely people will remain open thanks to new funding. Users of the Let's Chat hub at West Bromwich bus station had feared the worst after funding from Transport for West Midlands came to an end but West Midlands Combined Authority WMCA, said the centre, along with those in Coventry and Walsall, would stay open until at least March 2024. The bus station hubs have been credited with supporting people's mental health. West Bromwich staff said last month that since launching under a pilot scheme in February, the project had found more than 10 homeless people a place to live. WMCA said it had committed further funds from its TFWM budget, plus its Health and Communities program, to sustain the hubs over the coming months. A longer-term fund, it added, had also been identified, and a bid would be prepared by providers to further secure the hub's future. Councillor Izzy Seckham, WMCA's portfolio lead for well-being and the leader of Warwickshire County Council, said the hubs had been a huge success. She said, these community hubs have played a positive role in supporting people's mental health and well-being, and we look forward to them continuing to be a vibrant part of our bus stations. Kevin Muldowney, who has used the Let's Chat Hub at Walsall Bus Station said, this is an essential service for people in the Walsall area. It has helped a lot of people with their problems, and I have found it really useful to be able to sit and talk with like-minded people. Dudley Bus Station is set to be redeveloped as a new metro interchange, meaning the Let's Chat hub there has closed. Meanwhile, the hub at Bilston will continue to be available on Mondays only.
3: Vulnerable pensioners and the disabled are already cancelling their emergency alarm systems after Dudley Council began charging for the service last week. Dudley Telecare will now cost the vulnerable £250 a year. For 13 years the telecare system has been free and has helped thousands of pensioners and those with disabilities feel safe in their own home. However, on October the 1st, Dudley Council began charging £250 a year for the service, sparking fears the infirm will lie stricken on the floor if they have a fall and cannot ring their alarm. A retired Cosley policeman has relied on telecare for several years but has cancelled the service. He said, I think it is absolutely disgusting Dudley Council are charging for this service. I am medically retired and have had telecare ever since I moved into my home. It makes people like me feel safe knowing the emergency services or carers will contact if I have a fall or something else happens to me. He added, however, with the cost of food going up, bills rising, I cannot afford to pay out another 250 pounds for something which should be free. The retired policeman believes telecare users in Dudley need to take a stand to stop councils across the country charging for the service. He said, my friends have also decided to cancel the service. If enough of us cancel, then there is no way the council can say they have not put people in danger. If Dudley council can say everything went well with introducing charges, then every other council will follow suit and charge the most vulnerable for a lifeline service. Sedgley pensioner, aged 77, who did not want to be named, said, I will be cancelling telecare, but I am worried they will try and take it out of my pension without asking me. I don't think it is right to play around with the peace of mind of pensioners. We have enough to worry about. Currently, 3,800 people rely on the telecare service, which employs trained staff to deal with emergencies at its call centre which operates 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Ken Smith, who spent years campaigning for pensioners' rights at the West Midlands Pensioners' Convention, was disgusted with the move. He said, I cannot believe this news, just when you think these people cannot get any lower. This is the most vulnerable people who have physical problems and have little peace of mind knowing if there is a problem the emergency service or loved ones will not be far away. He added, This telecare system has been free for years, so everyone is relying on it. And we know you cannot put a price on peace of mind. But when these people smell money, that's what they do. They charge £250 a year. And now Dudley have done it, everyone else will follow suit. Councillor Matt Rogers, Cabinet Member for Adult Social Care said, We appreciate the implementation of charging will present concern for some of our users but alternative schemes are more expensive and are unable to offer the 24-7 local response and assistance that we can provide. I would encourage all residents who receive help in relation to council tax due to being in receipt of a low income benefit to get in touch as they could be eligible for a discount on community alarm charges.
2: Up next we hear from Helen, who as usual has our latest Beacon update.
4: Hi everyone, it's Helen from the Beacon Centre, back with your weekly update of everything that's been happening at our charity. And while we may just be starting October, we're already thinking about the festive season here at Beacon, so I am very excited to tell you that, yep, Santa Run is back for 2023. It is absolutely one of our favourite events of the year, so we would love for you to join us on Sunday, December the 3rd at Wolverhampton's West Park for some fabulous festive fun for all the family, including any little Santa paws as well. (laughs) Now, you can head to our website to find out some more information, www.beaconvision.org. And if you'd like to take part but need a guide runner, please give us a call to see if we can help. You can reach our supporter engagement team on 01902. 880111. Now, next up, it's challenge complete. Yep, we'd like to say a very big thank you and well done to everyone who dived in to complete our Swim 250 challenge during September. We so appreciate your support to help us ensure that no one has to face sight loss alone. Our thanks, in particular, go to the Beacon Mermaids members, some of whom may be listening. What a fantastic job you have done in aid of our charity! Don't forget to send us your swim log information and sponsorship forms if you completed the challenge offline. You can contact us via email at beaconvision.org or by the telephone on zero one nine zero two eight eight zero one one one. Now, last this week. Do you need help getting online? Whatever your ability, our team can help you get the most out of your mobile phone, tablet, computer or any other smart device. It really doesn't matter what your skill level is. Our team can absolutely help. Call us now for free support on 01902 880111 or email inquiries at beaconvision.org. That's it for this week. I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for that update, Helen. Next up, we have another
2: block of local news.
1: The West Midlands Police and Crime Commissioner has revealed that 9 out of 10 emergency calls are now answered within 10 seconds. West Midlands Police have said that the new response time marks a huge improvement in the service after the force ranked the lowest in the country for answering emergency calls last year. The force now sits in second place in the National League tables for answering times on emergency calls where, last year, they ranked lowest in the country. West Midlands Police and Crime Commissioner Simon Foster said, building trust and confidence in the force was one of the top priorities and welcomed the upturn in performance. If people do not have trust and confidence in policing, it will not be possible to deliver an effective and efficient police service, said Mr Foster. For far too long and far too often, despite the hard work of police officers and staff, West Midlands Police was not complying with either its own citizens charter or the required service level agreements, in relation to the service provided by force contact and in particular the answering of 999 and 101 calls. However, as a consequence of the forced contact optimisation project, investment and innovation, hard work on the part of officers and staff, and the oversight and scrutiny that I have been providing, there has been a significant improvement in performance. Since April 2023, West Midlands Police has also met the required national standard with average answering rates falling between 4 and 8 seconds, while only 0.1% of 999 calls are abandoned. Answering times on 101 calls have also seen an improvement, improving from an average of 10 minutes to 90 seconds between March 2023 and July 2023.
3: The West Midlands Police and Crime Commissioner Simon Foster also confirmed that Dudley is set to get a new police station with the current headquarters in Briley Hill to be sold. The new station, which it is hoped will be based at the Castlegate Business Park, will be fit for the 21st century and become Dudley Police's headquarters. Contracts have been exchanged, planning matters are in the process of being resolved with the local council, and the purchase is progressing. The new station will be modern have ample parking and good transport links close by mr foster said it will be a base for the local neighborhood policing team and force response it will also have a front contact office that the public can attend speaking to a police officer and report a crime the current police hq in Briley hill will be sold However, the local neighbourhood policing team will be relocated locally within the town to ensure the team remains within the community it serves. West Midlands Police are actively looking for a new police base in Briley Hill. Mr. Foster said, I am delighted to announce that Dudley is set to get a brand new police station. I have been working hard to deliver on my pledge that Dudley will have its own police station since I was elected in 2021. I am committed to rebuilding community policing to keep people, families, businesses and the local community safe and secure.
2: West Midlands police have also confirmed no arrests have yet been made in connection with a suspected arson attack on a historic black country pub as inquiries continue. The Greyhound and Punchbowl on High Street Bilston, which dates back to the 15th century, was badly damaged in the fire which tore through the Grade 2 listed building last week. It was formerly known as the Stowe Heath Manor House and is believed to have been restored in the 1930s. Council officials and specialists from Historic England paid a visit to the site last Thursday to assess if the pub was structurally sound. Following the visit, experts concluded that the building could be saved despite damage sustained in the fire. A spokesman for Historic England said, Our specialist staff were able to visit the Grade 2 listed Greyhound and Punchbowl yesterday to help assess the impact of the fire. We will be working with the owners, insurers and the council to assess repair options for this wonderful building. The good news is that, with the skills of appropriate conservation specialists, the damage can be repaired. Since the blaze, the fire officials and police forensic officers have been on site, with the road outside the pub having been corded off. A spokesman for Wolverhampton Council has confirmed that scaffolding will now be installed at the site with traffic diversions to remain in place outside the pub until it is secure and safe. Now it's time to test your knowledge as we have the quiz questions for this edition brought to us by Mina.
5: Hello, and welcome to this week's flashback quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question one. How old is the shipping forecast? Question two. In what year was it first broadcast on the radio? Question 3 Where is the Sea Area Dodger? Question 4 How many sea areas are there now? Question 5 Exactly how many words are used each time? Question 6 What's the title of the Shipping Forecasts Introduction Music? I will be back with you later in the show with the answers. But for now,
2: best of luck. Cheers for those questions, Mina. Hmm, I'll get my mind working on them. Up now, however, is another block of local news, starting with the Dudley Hippodrome.
3: Concerned the variety show was running over time, Morris Kennedy ordered that a young stand-up comics act should be cut to just five minutes. Eager to get on in his career, the young man was only too happy to oblige. You just give me a signal by stamping on the stage and I'll go into my closing routine, he replied. His name? Bruce Forsyth. Brucey was one of a handful of young, up-and-coming stars who made their name at the Dudley Hippodrome when it was one of the leading variety theatres in the country. While it attracted some of the world's biggest stars, Bob Hope, Laurel and Hardy, and Bing Crosby all played the hippo, it was also a springboard for little-known performers who would go on to glittering careers. Tommy Cooper, Ken Dodd, Tony Hancock, and Frankie Howard all cut their teeth on the Hippodrome's vast stage before going on to find fame in that newfangled medium of television. The Dudley Hippodrome is no more. The bulldozers have demolished what was the West Midlands' largest theatre. But while the building makes way for a new university campus, its legacy will live on.
1: Opening the week before Christmas 1938, by Dudley Joel MP, Dudley-born Wimbledon champion Dorothy Round was also in the audience, along with Deputy Mayor Alderman J. L. Hillman, architect Archibald Hurley Robinson, and builder A.J. Crump. Also, there was a young man called John Bullas, who recalled... Despite the fact that it was a bitterly cold night, the house was packed to capacity. Those fortunate enough to obtain a ticket for this momentous occasion will always treasure the memory. The polished performance on the night, masked a frantic battle behind the scenes, to get the building finished on time. While it was a running joke that theatres and cinemas were always finished at the last minute, the race against the clock was real this time. Just 16 months earlier, the Dudley Opera House burned down, and the Hippodrome was quickly built to replace it. With a capacity of 1,752, it was bigger than any other theatre in the region a brave move when theatres faced growing competition from cinema. The outbreak of war nine months later didn't help, but once properly up and running, there was no stopping the hippo. Throughout the 1950s, the biggest names in showbiz flocked to the venue. In a 1993 interview by historian Ned Williams, Stage manager Ken Shepard recalled the hysteria from fans of American heartthrob Frankie Lane. When stars like that appeared, we used a little exit at the back of the theatre to get them away, he said, adding that the singer was having none of it. He took off his toupee, revealing he was as bored as a badger, put on a pair of glasses, put on his Mac, Picked up an empty violin case and walked straight out of the stage door, he said. He walked straight through his fans who were shouting, We want Frankie! and they never even knew he was there. (music) Dudley Hippodrome in its heyday with Bruce Forsyth, Roy Castle, Ben Warris, and Ken Dodd. Around 1940, Ken remembered Tommy Cooper being every bit as chaotic off the stage as on, getting his car stuck in the archway to Dudley Castle on his way to the post-pantomime ball. Nobody could get him in or out, he said. Tommy Cooper eventually arrived at the ball by climbing out through his sunroof. The 1953 Pantomime starring Harry Secombe secured a place in history as the first to be shown on TV. But this new medium would contribute greatly to the Hippodrome's downfall. While big-name stars would still attract sellout crowds, the fees they charged were going up. When Paul Anker performed at the Hippodrome, he demanded 80% of the takings, meaning the show ran at a loss. The Hippodrome's huge capacity was becoming something of a millstone the theatre did not so much close as fizzle out, diversifying the range of entertainments to meet the changing demand. Wrestling shows, striptease, pop concerts and bingo nights all mingled with repertory theatre and operatic performances. Relaunched in 1973 as Caesar's Palace, Tommy Steele, Ken Dodd, The Bachelors and Mike and Bernie Winters all put on performances as did Tommy Cooper, Bob Monkhouse, Gene Pitney, Frank Ifield and Frankie Vaughan. But this could not hide the fact that the Riotty Theatre was going out of fashion, and it would be bingo that would prevail. Roy Orbison was the last live performer in August 1974. From that time on, the Hippodrome became just another bingo club, finally closing its doors in 2009
2: An art center is offering theatergoers the chance to pay what they can in a bid to make performances accessible to all. New Hampton Art Center, NAC, said its initiative allowed audiences to choose a ticket price that suited them. There are three tiers at three pounds, six pounds, and ten pounds, but visitors to the Wolverhampton venue can also pay sums of their choice. Newhampton Arts Centre CEO Trevelyan Wright said the plan meant people could enjoy great theatre without worrying about cost. Shows at the Arts centre begin on the 31st of October with Thumbelina, and then Model Village on the 1st of November. Mr. Wright said the scheme was being supported by Black Country Touring, BCT. You can always donate to BCT and NAC after the shows, but we welcome all to pay what they feel they can afford and take a chance on live theatre, he said. One of the most exceptional and unmissable productions for goers in the region over recent years was the powerful drama A Tale of Two Cities, which in Charles Dickens' own words was the best play I have ever written. So, in our latest offering here on the Black Country Talking News, Soundings contributor Rob Pearman talks to Terry Prince about the audio version of the epic classic Charles Dickens novel. Extracts are provided with permission of Calibre Audio.
6: It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only.
7: I'm delighted to welcome uh, Terry Prince into the studio again, and he's going to help us to understand one of Dickens'
8: most interesting works, and we've just heard the beginnings of it there. It's a wonderful piece, isn't it? Absolutely, and how relevant. I mean, it resonates today, does it not, in terms of uh, the UK's relationship to France and Europe in general. Um, the best of times, the worst of times. You know, some people will think it's the best of times, and some will think it's the worst of times. Um, well, we,
7: we better not go too far down that route. But I, I no, really we better totally, not. Because we're talking <laughs> about A Tale of Two Cities. We are, so, yeah. By the time Dickens wrote this one, he was well-established. He was quite well-known. Absolutely,
8: yeah. Lionised. Everybody knew Dickens. The yeah. working man yeah. read Dickens. And his novels, as you know, were serialised. So people were queuing up to buy the next edition of the story. And I think that's what makes this a particularly exciting read because you've got sort of the cliffhanger notion. You want to keep reading on and following the story through. Yes, he was well-established by now, not just as a writer. Around about now, I think it's 1859 or so, 1860, he began his career as a public reader, where he read extracts from his novels to huge gatherings all over the UK, and he toured America on a couple of occasions as well. In fact, Dickens, I think, was an actor monke. The story goes that had he not caught a cold on the day he was going to audition at a London theatre, he would have ended up as a professional actor. And his readings were tremendously theatrical readings. And I'm sure, and I know in fact, that Tale of Two Cities, extracts from those uh, featured in his readings.
7: Because it's about two countries it's about England and France at a very critical time because we're leading up to the the revolution in France and and the concerns about the revolution in England so we've got two sets of characters or two sets of situations.
8: We've got the two cities, the, the relatively peaceful and calm London where Lucy Manette and once she releases him from the Bastille her father Dr Manet live and the banker it's calm, it's peaceful but the country is very aware of the revolution in France and the bloody aftermath of the revolution that's going on now. So you have this terrific contrast with the calm of London contrasted with the violence and poverty, which produces more violence in a way. The people are very, very angry in Paris, in the suburbs of Paris.
6: Hunger. It was prevalent everywhere. Hunger was pushed out of the tall houses in the wretched clothing that hung upon poles and lines. "'Hunger was patched into them with straw and rag and wood and paper. "'Hunger was repeated in every fragment of the small modicum of firewood "'that the man sawed off. "'Hunger stared down from the smokeless chimneys "'and started up from the filthy street "'that had no offal among its refuse of anything to eat. "'Hunger was the inscription on the baker's shelves, "'written in every small loaf of his scanty stock of bad bread.' At the sausage shop, in every dead dog preparation that was offered for sale, hunger rattled its dry bones among the roasting chestnuts in the turned cylinder.
7: And there are some particular characters that Dickens explored in Paris.
8: Madame Defarge, de who's hell-bent on gaining her revenge on the aristocratic family that carried out atrocities against her predecessors. And the member of that family she's particularly after, of course, is connected with the aforementioned Lucie Manette. So you have the love story there, which is in danger of being destroyed by the actions of a bloodthirsty Madame Defarge, a woman to be feared.
6: "'I believe with all my soul that we shall see the
8: triumph. "'But even
6: if not, even if I knew certainly not, "'show me the neck of an aristocrat and tyrant, "'and still I would.' "'Then madame, with her teeth set, "'tied a very terrible knot indeed. "'Hold!' cried Defarge, reddening a little, "'as if he felt charged with cowardice. "'I too, my dear, will stop at nothing.' Yes, but it is your weakness that you sometimes need to see your victim and your opportunity to sustain you. Sustain yourself without that. When the time comes, let loose a tiger and a devil, but wait for the time with the tiger and the devil chained, not shown, yet always
8: ready. I mentioned Madame Defarge. She's contrasted with Miss Pross, who is Lucy's confidant, etc. A terrifically powerful English lady. Think Margaret Rutherford. Nice comic relief as well, which is needed throughout the book. So you have the clash of these two women as one kind of storyline in the book. Mrs Pross is one
7: of the characters, the typically Dickensian character in many ways. But there are others as well. And there's one that struck
8: me. Jerry Jerry
6: Cruncher.
7: Mr. Cruncher reposed under a patchwork
6: counterpane like a harlequin at home. At first he slept heavily, but by degrees began to roll and surge in bed, until he rose above the surface with his spiky hair looking as if it must tear the sheets to ribbons, at which juncture he exclaimed in a voice of dire exasperation, "Bast me if
0: she ain't at it again!'
6: A woman of orderly and industrious appearance rose from her knees in a corner with sufficient haste and trepidation to show that she was the person referred to. "'What?' said Mr. Cruncher, looking out of bed for a boot. "'You're at it again, are you?' After hailing the morn with this second salutation, he threw a boot at the woman as a third. "'It was a very muddy boot.'
8: very robust english character of the kind that dickens was familiar with drawing so what dickens is doing here is he set himself in, in a historical context
7: yeah. which is not typical of many of the other dickens books that we know so well i mean you think of great expectations the, the political context is not really well declared uh,
8: now off the top of my head i can't
7: think of another one no, this is, is, yeah, right. so i think i think this is quite different in that sense and yet he maintains the, the ability to construct characters, yes. and so, as you said, it's in series. You see, you get a bite-sized chunk each week if you mm. if you buy right. the paper, That's as right. it were. That's right. And in there, you keep the entertainment level going through these characters. Sometimes they're not trivial characters; they're they're real. They've got a role to play, and they have a significant role to play in all of them in many ways. Mm. Mm. But it's also the cliff edge stuff and the characterization, yeah. yeah, and that makes it very entertaining.
8: Uh, absolutely, his characters. I mean, even people who haven't read Dickens know of in characters. They know of of Scrooge they yes. know of Oliver
7: Twist
8: they, they know Wackford Squeers yes. because they are so colourful they're, they're often accused of being larger than life with no kind of psychological depth now, I think there may well be some credence in that but does it really matter in terms of the overall kind of shape of the story that he's telling if you want psychological depth you probably don't go to Dickens but if you want well-drawn characters and a strong narrative then you probably do go to Dickens.
7: Dickens is very difficult to read because it's quite dense yes. uh, and there are often okay. whole yeah. sections that yeah. you think, yeah. cracky, I wish you'd get to the end of this and get yes. back to the story. But of course, what he's doing is giving the colour yeah. and the context. And that's why listening to it is quite fun because it takes you along with it. So you yeah. have the voice of yeah. the narrator to give you that extra yeah. access.
8: It's a narrator's joy, I think, to read a Dickens novel because you've got so many different characters to play with. I think your previous point is very well made, but I think the whole experience of reading then and now is very, very different. We live, I think, do we not, in an impatient age? We need to do something, get on to the next thing before we finish the first thing properly. So we have uh, e-readers and we have smartphones to read from. And then life was slower paced, I would suggest, and you had time. I mean, what what did you do in the evening if you didn't read? There wasn't a radio, there wasn't television, etc. And so he was able to indulge himself. I think. Mm. I think that's a very fair. But he criticism. wasn't
7: also, as you said yourself. Early, earlier, wasn't uh, appealing to an elitist audience because no. the common man, common man could yeah. access.
8: Yeah, yeah. There, there are many stories of common people breaking down in tears when they heard, they heard that Dickens had died. He was a friend to all of us. He was a, a man we could relate, and a man who related to us. Because uh-huh. he used to go on these midnight walks. He'd walk London, the streets of London, and because he had this actor's ability, had this actor's ear, he could put people on the page through their language alone. I mean, he's a master at doing this. Okay, so you don't get the psychological depth perhaps but you do get this string of colourful characters so and of course Dickens
7: knew his London very well he'd had a pretty tough upbringing hadn't he I mean he'd been in very much so yes th- his yeah. father's yeah. loss of money he'd been in the death of the well, he. his didn't.
8: father ended father. up in the Marshalsea, and in yeah. one of his novels uh, Little Dorrit uh, explores the Marshalsea there but the worst experience he had which he writes about um, on many occasions is when he was sent to a blacking factory to work on the edge of the Thames in a blacking factory And he thought he deserved far better than this. And what really upset him was his mother colluded in this act. And when he eventually was able to get away from there, she was all for sending him back again. He had a very kind of rudimentary education, but he had, above all, an amazing education. Energy. When you read anything about him, this is what impressed me more than anything else. The man was just a human dynamo. He never kind of stopped. I mean, he edited these monthly magazines. Before that, he was a journalist churning stuff out. He was a, a law reporter. And then he became a, a novelist with his breakthrough novel, Pickwick Papers. And from then on, there was no looking back. He wasn't a wasted minute in his life. He was a man of tremendous energy. A man also who was the epitome of the, the English family man, the English heart and all that kind of thing with the Christmas stories and what have you. Absolutely vile in his treatment of his wife.
7: Let's go back to the tale of two cities because that's where we came into this. Although yes. the whole point is that there's so much indicators that anybody can explore and, and listening to it, if not reading. Lucy, you mentioned yeah. the young girl uh, whose father has come out of imprisonment and in a very shocking Isn't state. Bastille, and, yeah, so yes. It's very awful. But she has two or three or four potential uh, lovers, people that fall in love with her. That's right. A couple of young men and some characters. That's that right. Are That's highly right. Highly unsatisfactory. Yeah. But uh, the two young men, one is fairly straightforward. He may have yes. come from Paris. He has a background, which we could talk about.
8: He, he has a Charles Darnay yeah. ha- has a background indeed. And it's the very background that involves him with or gets Madame Defarge involved with him. It's an aristocratic background that he comes from. and he falls in love with Lucy and the implications of that involve another man who had he thought more highly of himself would have considered himself a suitor to Lucy, and that's Sidney Carton. But as Sidney says of himself, I care for no man on earth, and no man on earth cares for me. He's an outsider, a maverick, no kind of self-respect whatsoever, and yet he makes a moral journey throughout this book of an immense distance.
7: He's not seen that often in the story, is he? No,
8: because the main story is that about the machinations of of Madame Defarge and the fellow revolutionaries to exact their revenge on anybody who's left from the aristocrats Aristocratic Evremont family. And of course, Lucy's father, unbeknownst to her, was imprisoned as a result of machinations by an aristocratic family to prevent him speaking the truth about about an event that happened early on in his life. And he was thrown into the Bastille for that. So there's this constant intertwining of the two cities, London and Paris, through the characters involved Lucy, Darnay, Carton, Defarge on the French side, etc. That this is a novel which moves at a great pace. can be very very wordy this one rattles along i think anyway i mean he knocked it off in a year which was some going really uh, if you listen to this I- i'm sure you'll be swept along because of the depth of feeling of the characters for each other and the sheer excitement of a tale and the fact that you know we all have uh, a knowledge no matter how deep we all have a knowledge of the french revolution and the atrocities that were carried out there
6: the Grandstone had a double handle And turning at it madly were two men whose faces, as their long hair flapped back when the whirlings of the grindstone brought their faces up, were more horrible and cruel than the visages of the wildest savages in their most barbarous disguise. False eyebrows and false moustaches were stuck upon them, and their hideous countenances were all bloody and sweaty, and all awry with howling, and all staring and glaring with beastly excitement and want of sleep. As these ruffians turned and turned, their matted locks now flung forward over their eyes, now flung backward over their necks, some women held wine to their mouths that they might drink. And what with dropping blood, and what with dropping wine, and what with the stream of sparks struck out of the stone, all their wicked atmosphere seemed gore and fire. The eye could not detect one creature in the group free from the smear of blood,
8: that keeps you riveted to the story. So don't be put off by the fact that, oh, it's Dickens and it might be long-winded and go on forever. No, it rattles a lot.
7: Revolutions are bloodthirsty, so there's, you know, once the, the the revolution's begun, the the number of killings and uh, attacks increases and so it becomes very, very dangerous and that comes into the essence of the story yeah, itself, of course, because our characters right. find themselves in the middle of that. And I think probably they've said a lot about Dickens and why it's great to read this, and I think all we
8: would say is give it a go. Give it a go. An exciting story and i mean without the guillotine i still think resonates today (laughs) and you'll all know the final sentence when you hear it
6: it is a far far better thing that i do than i have ever done it is a far far better rest that i go to
8: than i have ever known thank you very much terry thank you thanks for asking
2: me
0: tnf soundings
2: Up next, let's have another
1: block of local news.
2: Dog owners in Wolverhampton have been urged to follow a series of new rules set to be enforced this month. Wolverhampton Council has introduced the measures as part of an update to the City's Existing Public Spaces Protection Order, PSPO, based on views from a 12-week public consultation carried out earlier this year. The order now requires anyone in control of a dog to carry a suitable means of removing their pet's faeces and to provide their names and address when asked to do so by an authorised officer. It also means owners are not permitted to allow their dogs into specified water spots in the city, including Tetanol Pool or the Fountain in Queen Square, and that they must be kept on a lead in council-operated cemeteries. Councillor Craig Collingswood, Cabinet Member for Environment and Climate Change at Wolverhampton Council, said Our previous PSPO was due to expire this autumn, so we carried out a public consultation earlier this year to gain residents' views on an updated version. The results showed a significant level of support for the continuation of existing measures as well as backing for the new ones. We recognize that the vast majority of dog owners are very responsible and would not put others in danger, but the updated PSPO is being introduced to cover the small minority who are unwilling to put their pets on a lead in specified areas or clean up after them. We hope this will help reduce any potential stress and physical harm to people and other animals from dogs that are a nuisance or a danger. It will also help us preserve a clean and safe public environment. As part of the terms of the PSPO, we will continue to monitor and review its effectiveness and would encourage all dog owners to behave responsibly and follow the safety measures. The new measures come in addition to the existing six, which state that dogs must be kept on a lead by major arterial roads of the city, when within a 100 metre radius of school or academy entrances, and when within certain areas of Northercote Farm. The order also outlines that owners must stop their four-legged friends from entering children's play areas and fence tennis courts within the city. Owners should also put their pets on a lead if requested to do so by any authorised officer who reasonably leaves the dog to be a nuisance. In addition, the measures state that any fetal matter should be removed with the owners required to keep their dogs under control including making sure they can be recalled. Do not run up to other dogs or cause a nuisance to other walkers, dogs and their owners. Anyone who does not comply with the order, which does not apply to assistant dogs, may face an on the spot fine of £80 and could be taken to court. To find out more about the updated PSPO, visit wolverhampton.gov.uk.
3: Eagle-eyed birdwatchers are flocking to a black country park after a supposed colony of wild, ring-necked parakeets were filmed in a popular green space. Colourful birds were spotted playing and nesting in a tree line at Lizo's Park, Hales Owen, earlier this week. Birdwatchers are now descending on the park from miles around in a bid to catch a glimpse of them. The colony of colourful birds has also been spotted flying, eating and playing in back gardens, fields and tree lines across the region. Earlier this year, talking about the increase in wild parakeet numbers, Jacob Williams, Senior Reserves Officer at Birmingham and Black Country Wildlife Trust said, Ring-necked parakeets are not native to the UK and although they are beautiful birds, they are also a powerful and competitive species. There are reported concerns that parakeets could be having a detrimental impact on some of our native bird species, such as the woodpecker and the nuthatch, by occupying cavities for nesting, and the great tit and blue tit by dominating local food sources. Researchers are currently studying the potential effect that the increase in parakeet populations may be having on our native wildlife. Their numbers are growing i think there are more sightings from what i remember when i was just starting out but that's a good thing and a bad thing they can be quite bad for the local wildlife when they settle in a location many eagle-eyed birdwatchers race to see the colorful birds however some environmentalists say that the exotic avians can potentially have a devastating effect on the native ecosystem Matt Kirby, the owner of Oak Ecology, an independent ecological surveyor, said they love to nest in holes in wide, tall trees, similar to a lot of other tree-dwelling animals. They can get territorial when they want. They are really opportunistic, so when the original owners are away from their hole, they will most likely move in. The ecologist said the birds can also get territorial over food sources, fighting with other species over feeding areas. Mr. Kirkby continued, these are lovely birds to see, but they can be invasive to the native species in the area. They do contend over food sources, which means that some less aggressive native birds will lose out. It takes around 40 to 50 days from hatching to fledgling, so a rough estimate is around two months from laying an egg to leaving a nest. That could mean that we see more over the next year. Thought to have been accidentally released from captivity in the 1970s, the birds have quickly spread to every region in the UK and have been one of the UK's most abundant
1: naturalised parrots. Now then. Anything is possible. Given the opportunity as a tagged tuna was chased up the M5 by scientists after a tourist was believed to have accidentally taken it home. Researchers at the University of Exeter had tagged the Atlantic bluefin tuna off Plymouth in Devon a few weeks ago as part of a research project. However, researchers were confused to find that the giant fish was travelling on the M5 on its way up towards the black country it had turned out that brian shuttleworth who was on holiday in cornwall at the time had discovered the tag washed up on the beach amongst some seaweed and decided to take it home to lancashire the tag had managed to safely detach itself from the fish which led to it being washed up in white sand bay he said We were holidaying in Cornwall and we'd gone down onto the beach and we were just walking along the beach. The tide had started to come in and I saw it in amongst a load of seaweed. I recognised what it looked like, detangled it and put it in my pocket with every intention to ring the phone number in tiny writing on it. However, due to other life commitments Mr Shuttleworth had forgotten to do it. Only after the PhD students checked their GPS location beacon did they realise the tag was on the move up towards the black country. Dr Lucy Hawkes, one of the leaders of the Tuna Tagging Project, said, These tags collect very detailed information, but they only transmit their location. To get the rest of the data, we have to recover the tags. They are designed to fall off the tuna after about 6 days and obviously we can't control where the tuna go so the tags can be hard to recover. We have deployed 20 to 30 tags over 5 years and recovered 8 so far. The tags are incredibly useful for our work so I wasn't ready to give up on this one. We assumed someone had picked the tag up off the beach and driven home from their holiday. The university team quickly launched an appeal to recover the tag and went to local radio stations, hoping a listener could have picked it up. Mr Shuttleworth heard the end of the broadcast and called into BBC Radio Lancashire to reveal he was the one to pick it up. The device has since been returned to Plymouth via mail, with researchers tracking its journey home the whole way. It's debatable... But you could say that this was an efficient ending. Tune in next week for even more sophisticated tales. Up next, it's Trivia Time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. It's all yours, Roger. Take it away.
9: again everyone I hope that you're all as well as you can be again this week today I've chosen to tell you about a long-time favorite of mine and that is listening to the shipping forecast on the radio so here goes now then did you know that the shipping forecast began life exactly 156 years ago on the 24th of August 1867 and was originally a series of telegraph messages and sent to harbour towns to warn them of impending storms and it was pioneered by Admiral Robert Fitzroy following a catastrophic storm in 1859 that killed 800 mariners off the coast of Wales. Fitzroy captained HMS Beagle which carried Charles Darwin on his explorations. The shipping forecast started up on radio in 1924 when the Air Ministry started broadcasting its weather shipping program using 13 maritime zones twice daily on what was then the home service. There are now 31 zones which are given out in strict order, beginning at Viking in the northeast bordering Norway and proceeding in a clockwise direction around the British Isles. Once the area called Dogger in the North Sea gets its name from the Dutch word for sailing vessel. Dogger Bank is a prime fishing area for cod, and a dangerous place to be, as it's a 160 mile mass of underwater sand dunes, some of which are as tall as Olsen's Column. And the shipping forecast is quite possibly the most British thing ever, it's quirkier than cricket, definitely old fashioned and ceremonial, and as reassuring as Big Ben. Produced by the UK's Met Office, it's broadcast four times a day on BBC Radio 4 listing the weather conditions in 31 sea areas surrounding the British Isles. The shipping forecast is read out at 5.20 a.m., 11.01 p.m., 5.54 p.m., and 0.048 a.m. Each bulletin begins with exactly the same opening lines and follows the same structure. The whole thing never exceeds 370 words. The last broadcast of the day, just before 1 a.m., is preceded by hearing Sailing By, an orchestral piece by Ronald Bing. This repetitive waltz helps sailors find the right frequency. And One thousand use the day's last forecast as a lullaby. Adding to its hypnotic, soporific effect is the fact that it's read out at a deliberately slow pace to allow seafarers to make notes. The strange place names and the weird jargon give the shipping forecast its magical shine, and perhaps They give the thousands tucked away safe in their beds, pause to think about those at sea at that very moment in the dark, listening to the same bulletin. Well, I have to say, that I love listening to the shipping forecast, and I often hear the last one of the day. But it is soothing, and I rarely hear it to the end, and I've often nodded off before it leaves the Irish Sea. I hope though that this week's offering hasn't sent you to sleep. And rode up and off. I think I'm going to make me a nice mug of Ovaltine today and have me an early night. So till next week, then I'll say bye for now. Ta ra a bit. Ta ra.
2: Up now we have to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us, come rain or shine, by our own Sunny Mina. The weather for
5: this week ahead is forecast to return to something much more seasonal and unsettled with some sunny intervals but plenty of showers. UV levels are expected to fluctuate between low and medium as we go through the week. The sunrise and sunset times are 7.35am for the sunrise and 6.10pm for the sunset. Friday 13th of October is forecast to be wet and breezy with plenty of rain. Temperatures are expected to still feel a little humid and muggy at 17 degrees. Moving on and another spell of unbroken sunshine looks to hit the region for the weekend. With a gentle breeze temperatures will feel cooler than last weekend but still pleasant at 14 degrees on both Saturday and Sunday. On to next week where a spell of unsettled weather will dominate once again with plenty of sharp showers to look out for. It is forecast for the dry weather to remain in the region on Monday 16th of October. With sunny intervals and a gentle breeze, temperatures should continue to hold up well at 13 degrees. A spell of wet weather is set to move in to the region on Tuesday 17th of October right through to Thursday 19th of October. The showers are forecast to be persistent throughout the week, but there's a chance of some brief sunny intervals breaking through at times with Wednesday looking like it has a chance of remaining dry. Temperatures will continue to feel mild for this time of year at 15 degrees. So, that's another dose of sunshine and showers for
1: the week. As always, enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Now it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on.
3: Friday nights provided the first instalment of a weekend of West Midlands derbies. With the PGMOL, the body responsible for refereeing games, seemingly now issuing apologies every week, officiating controversy continued to plague English football as Albion sank to an undeserved 3-1 defeat against Birmingham City, in part thanks to a hugely contentious penalty decision. It was a mood of celebration ahead of kickoff as fireworks greeted the players to mark the test launch of some of the lower Tilton stand. But it was the visitors who sent a rocket to jolt the Blues with another powerful start, this time scoring after just five minutes. Very little looked on as Grady Diangana rolled on a short square pass perfectly into the path of man of the moment John Swift who caressed a wonderful daisy-cutter right into the bottom corner beyond John Ruddy. So much so, it kissed the inside of the post before rolling over the line. Albion were good for their lead. Some of the early football was sharp, with Blues looking rattled. But there was drama and real controversy just around the corner. An innocuous move ended in a coming-together inside the penalty area, with Albion calling for a goal kick and expecting a corner at worst. Referee James Linnington and his team had other ideas though and instantly pointed at the penalty spot to the complete and utter shock of everyone of both persuasions in St. Andrews. Replays showed the Albion defender clearly won the ball. There was perhaps minimal contact but the decision looked scandalous from the visitors point of view. The Blues buried the spot kick to cancel out Albion's fine opener. The baggies looked to regroup, but quite clearly the decision had changed things, and referee Linnington's failings were no explanation for Blues' second seven minutes before the interval. With Albion failing to clear a short corner, Wensfield-born former man Dion Sanderson evaded the baggies' high defensive line to head high into the corner over Palmer, Albion boss Carlos Corberan introduced Connor Townsend at the interval and switched his side to a back four. The black country outfit continued to play some silky football at times with some eye-catching one-touch play. It was almost one-way traffic in Albion's favour for most of the second half and they should have grabbed a deserved equaliser but somehow steered chance after chance wide of the target. The Baggies kept going, but a late goal for the Blues with three minutes to go sealed a crucial result that will lead to more refereeing debate. Upset and despondent boss Carlos Corberan claimed the contentious penalty decision left him feeling different than ever before with Albion, facing more than 11 men. The Baggies boss said, I have never had this feeling in my life, and instead he will never forget the incident that he felt cost his side at St. Andrews. Last year was a fair defeat, this year was different. Before the penalty we started well, but after we didn't give enough continuity in the attacking half. We were defensively in control, we had opportunities to create more chances, and we didn't do it well enough. After this, it's difficult to analyse the game tonight without talking about the penalty. It's changed the game. Coach Corberan believes the baggies have been hard done by of late, as Albion have received refereeing reports in recent weeks where five major incidents have gone against them. For the most, they have played some fine football, but lacked the desired cutting edge to secure the points they merited as the championship season pauses for international action. Our second instalment of West Midlands Derby was played out on Sunday afternoon where Wolves and Villa shared local bragging rights with a feisty 1-1 draw at Molineux. Both teams made a quick start to the game, but a distinct lack of cutting edge saw any chances created fizzle out with poor attempts on goal. With Wolves making the occasional error, the visitors had the better of the early moments and were presented with a big chance midway through the first half but goalkeeper José Sarr was equal to it with a good save. Despite both sides creating some chances, it was a rather scrappy contest and the momentum slowed as players began going down with injuries. Further clumsy challenges sparked a few handbags on the pitch and exchanges in the dugouts where both sets of staff had to be separated. Born out of frustration, it was something out of nothing as the half-time whistle blew and both teams, content with their showing of resolute defending, entered the break, drawing nil-nil. In the opening minutes of the second half, Jose Sarr was forced into a magnificent save when Watkins got in front of Dawson and poked the ball towards goal, but the goalkeeper tipped it over his bar. With Villa putting the pressure on, an incisive counter-attack fired Wolves in front, The ball was worked wide to Pedro Neto on the right, who flew past a couple of Villa defenders, cut into the box and crossed low for Huang Hee Chan, who tapped home his sixth goal in all competitions this season, equalling last season's top goalscorer for the club in the process. Molyneux was booming for all of two minutes, as Pau Torres, who moments earlier was made to look like he was wading through treacle by Pedro Neto, Made amends by dragging Villa level with his first goal for the club. Wolves then had another blow when both Mario Lemina and Nelson Semedo picked up their fifth booking of the season, which means they will now be suspended for the trip to Bournemouth after the international break. With Wolves looking for a winner, Molyneux was a buzz, and they should have retaken the lead when a fine move down the left flank saw an inch perfect cross into Neto at the far post but he somehow managed to blaze the opportunity over the bar from just 10 yards out. A sense of disbelief then struck all corners of Molyneux when 12 minutes of added time were added at the end of 90 minutes. And the added time became a lot harder for Wolves when midfielder Mario Lamina was shown a second yellow card. That means after missing the Bournemouth game through suspension, Lamina will be back on four yellow cards and close to another suspension. With Wolves defending deep, Villa sensed an opportunity and pushed for a winner. With the officials playing on beyond the 12 minutes, Watkins then smashed the post with the last kick of the game before the full-time whistle was blown. Wolves were furious with the extent of the added time and made their feelings known, prompting both managers Emery and O'Neill, to have an angry confrontation as they did not shake hands. Speaking after the game, the Wolves head coach was clearly aggrieved. They explained that there was the sending off and he had to walk off the pitch. And there was a VAR check as well during it, which added a little bit extra, O'Neill said. 14 minutes or whatever it ended up being seems excessive because it didn't feel like there were loads of stoppages in the second half. I'm pleased we were capable of matching a good side that are in Europe and have spent a lot of money on the squad and we looked comfortable. We were the ones looking more likely to score, and had decent control until the sending off. Then we were hanging on, but it was a good point against a good side.
1: Now, here come the quiz answers, and they're brought to us by Mina.
5: Hello and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question 1. How old is the shipping forecast? And the answer, 156 years old question 2 in what year was it first broadcast on the radio answer is 1924 question three where is the sea area Dodger and the answer it's in the north sea question 4 how many sea areas are there now and the answer there are 31. Question five, exactly how many words are used each time? And the answer there are 370. And finally, question six, what's the title of the shipping forecast introduction music? And the answer, it's called Sailing By by Ronald Binge. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry as I will be back next week to test you all once again. Bye for now.